When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Today we're going to talk about Haiti and whether foreign forces should deploy to take on gangs that control more than half of the capital, Port-au-Prince. After days of unrest in the capital of Haiti, leaders call for calm. Violent anti-government protests, demonstrators demanding the Prime Minister to resign after hikes in fuel prices and inflation rising to its highest level in a decade. The country is faced with chronic gang violence. Earlier this week, two journalists were shot dead and their bodies set on fire. For decades now, Haitians have suffered political crises, gang violence and natural disasters. But this past year has been especially bleak. In July last year, gunmen killed then-president Jovenel Moise. Ariel Henry became prime minister. He was supposed to take the country to elections. Pervasive insecurity has meant it's been impossible to hold a vote. It's hardly helped that Henri, a few months ago, disbanded the election commission. Gang violence has spiralled, with two rival coalitions of gangs battling each other for control of different parts of the city. Haitians have repeatedly taken to the streets, angry at the bloodshed and at hikes in fuel prices after Prime Minister Henri lifted fuel subsidies. Gangs also blocked the port, the country's main fuel terminal, for weeks, and they control all main roads leading to the capital, which has brought much of the country to a standstill. Schools, hospitals are mostly closed. Shortages of drinking water have led to a cholera outbreak, which has been hard to contain because health and aid workers, for the most part, can't get into areas controlled by gangs. Last month, in the face of all this, Henri called for an international force to step in. This is UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres talking about what foreign troops might do. It's an absolutely nightmarish situation for the population of Haiti, especially Port-au-Prince. We need an armed action to release the port and to allow for a humanitarian corridor to be established. I'm talking of uh, something to be done in support of the Haitian police, and I'm talking of something to be done based on strict humanitarian criteria. Any foreign force will have its work cut out, though. 
fighting gangs in densely populated urban areas is going to be tough going. After previous foreign interventions by the UN, the US and others, many Haitians are likely to be hostile. Henri's opponents reject the idea of foreign troops, though there are some signs that people in areas most racked by gang violence are more supportive, seemingly out of sheer desperation. So can anyone break the grip of gangs over much of Haiti? Should foreign forces deploy? And if so, what should they do? I'm very happy to welcome on Diego Darin, who's doing some work with Crisis Group on Haiti. Diego's just come back from Port-au-Prince. And to welcome back on Renata Segura, who listeners will know is Crisis Group's Deputy Latin America and Caribbean Director. Diego, Renata, welcome on. Thank you. Thank you, Richard, for having us. Thank you for having us. So... We'll get in a moment to the politics in Haiti and we'll come, of course, to prospects of a foreign military or police mission. But before we do that, could we talk a little bit about the gangs themselves? So the UN's, I think, top official in Haiti said recently that armed groups control maybe 60% of Port-au-Prince. I mean, what does that actually feel like when you're in the capital, Diego? I mean, do those figures resonate? Well, according to the estimates of different organizations and NGOs, the gang control most of the total territory of the country, but they are concentrated in the Port-au-Prince metropolitan area. The estimations said that they control 60 or 70% of the territory, but these figures may not reflect the reality accurately since they are not very up-to-date and the gangs expand their footholds every day. And when we talk about control of gangs, I mean, presumably there's parts of the city that they are well established and there's other parts that they've recently expanded to. Is that right? Is there a difference in what that looks like? Well, the gang proliferation and expansion have been accelerating over the last two or three years since 2008. And for example, in June 2021, for the first time, the gangs took control of one of the main routes in Haiti, the route passing from Martisan, which connects the capital to the south of the country. And it has been blocked since then. And since then, they have taken control over all the other gateways of the capital to the east. The route linking to the Dominican Republic is controlled by two gangs. And the route connecting to the north, which is the route number one, is increasingly blockaded by other armed groups. More recently, the other alternative roads used to avoid the passing through Martisan to go to the south are also controlled by other gangs. So every road connecting the capital to other areas of the country are blocked right now. Richard, something that is very important to understand is the way that the city is built. That is not, you know, according to urban planning or anything of that sort. So we're talking about very small streets going up the hills very narrow alleys with uh, houses climbed one on top of the other. It's all so crammed that the gangs, it's very easy for them to see who's coming in and out. And that's one of the difficulties of fighting them. It's like, it's really difficult to distinguish who is a gang member and who is a member of the population. And it's not that you can say like, oh, we just target this house because of the way that Port-au-Prince is built in particular, like the areas like the Cito Soleil and the areas where there is more poverty. It's really difficult to move around without you being seen by the gangs. Yeah, and Cite Soleil, I mean, listeners have probably heard of it. We'll talk about it in more depth in a moment. It's one of the biggest slums. If you're living in, in one of these areas, if you're living in an area where gangs have a very established presence or alternatively in an area where they've just sort of seized control, I mean, what is life like for you? Well, 
people living in these areas under control are under the constant scrutiny of gang members and gang leaders and anyone who express negative opinion about the armed group or that favors another group risks of being killed or well lately people that have been suspected of having links with a rival gang or have increasingly been victims of collective rapes in front of their families they have been murdered and their homes have been destroyed or burned down and being in these areas uh, during the periods of the clashes which are very frequent in some in some areas well the population is is used by the gangs as a human shield to deter the other armed groups from launching large scale attacks but in latest clashes for example in Cité Soleil and in the plain de Cutsac there were many victims most of almost 500 persons that were killed were from civilian population This was in the clashes, which we'll talk about in a moment over the summer. Yes, this was between the months of May, June, and July of this year. And so, during these clashes, the inhabitants of these neighborhoods have to take refuge. For example, in Cité Soleil, they had to take refuge in their homes for more than a week. They couldn't go out from their neighborhoods, and they didn't have any access to water, to food. The wounded had no access to medical help either. Richard, the gangs are obviously very interested in keeping the population of the neighborhoods that they control within those areas. And they're really trying to make sure that people don't move out because having control over the population is the way that they make money, but also that they have control over the territory. So, for example, if a family has jobs that are outside of the area that they control, the gangs will only allow uh, one of the family members to go on a given day because they are afraid that if both parents leave, then, you know, that means that they're trying to move away. And the way you describe it is, I mean, the gangs are largely predatory, in other words. I mean, as, as you say, Diego, I mean, there's been these, these I think, human rights bodies have pointed to cases of rape with even children raped in front of their parents elderly people raped as a form of of social control as you say Renata there's tight controls about who comes and who goes into those areas but is that i mean presumably the gang members are from those areas a lot of them are locally recruited so they have pre-existing relations with people who live there is there more than a purely predatory relationship between the gangs and the people in areas that they're controlling well the gangs since there's no tangible presence of the state in these areas. The gangs are the only authority that exists for the local populations. People who live in those areas have told me when I was in Port-au-Prince that they are seen as the protectors of the population from attacks from rival gangs. They also continually engage in activities to carry out a type of indoctrination in which they portray themselves as defenders of the poor or communitary leaders. And, you know, Richard, like in Haiti, such as other places like Central America, where there's a lot of gangs in these populations where people have no other path out of poverty, right? Like if you are a young man living in Cid Soleil, it's not that you have a choice of, of employment. It's not that you can uh, be guaranteed that you can go to school and then find, you know, uh, a normal sort of path to life. So for the young people here, it's both 
sort of a desperate move to join the gangs because they have no other path. But it's also a way to gain social respect, to guarantee that they'll have access to a phone, that there will be a little bit of protection for their family. So it's both predatory in that people have no choice if they are recruited, but it's also the only way of having a life in which you're not the victim and that gives you some social status and some advantages that other people don't have. So in, in Diego's visit, we heard from parents saying like, it, it, we really would like our kids to avoid being in the gangs. But once you are in the neighborhoods that are controlled, really it becomes an advantage uh, for the family. Not saying that this is in any way an easy choice, and obviously a lot of the gang members also end up being dead in these confrontations with other gangs. So it's a difficult path to take, but really it's sort of, you know, it's not like you have good choices. And Diego, I mean, you said before that in some ways the gangs portray themselves as protecting the communities in which they're operating in, protecting them from other gangs, basically. But are there services at all? whether it's schools, clinics, garbage collection. I mean, is the state present in any way in areas that are controlled by the gangs? Well, the most basic services are sometimes carried out by the gangs, such as the distribution of water. But, for example, if you see in Cité Soleil, there's not a single school or hospital that is working right now. So maybe some years ago, the gangs really relied on the support uh, on the active support of the population to defend their territories. But right now, the population just has no choice, even if they do not bring the social services that they brought before some years ago. And Diego, when we talk about gangs, I mean, people sometimes cite this number of 200 gangs, more than 200, you know, many, many different gangs. But there's also this G9, a coalition of the biggest nine gangs, seems to be pitted against another coalition of gangs. So how should we understand these numbers? Yes. Well, here again, the figures are approximate and very not very up to date, but it is estimated, as you say, that there are around 200 gangs around the country and that more than half of these 200 gangs have presence in Port-au-Prince. So according to different uh, security experts and people who live in these areas, the main gangs have between 300 and 500 members, uh, not counting the people who are, who collaborate uh, with them in one way or another, aren't members. But perhaps more important than talking about the number of gangs is to focus on how the alliance and rivalries have reorganized, reshaped recently. There are two main gang coalitions that were formed in mid-2020. The first one is called the Force Révolutionnaire G9 and Famille Alliés, which in English is uh, Revolutionary Forces G9 Family and Allies, that is commonly known as the G9. This group is led by a gang leader that is called Jimmy Cherizier, also known as Barbecue, who created this alliance uh, with nine main leaders of gangs in Port-au-Prince in June to 2020. And why is he known as Barbecue? Well, some people say because his mother used to sell fried chicken in front of her house when he was a boy. But other people say that it's because gangs and mostly the gangs that he leads uh, with the G9 burn the corpses of their enemies. So he created this alliance. I think it is important to note that the Jovenel Moïse government uh, has been accused of facilitating the reconfiguration of these relations, allegedly to facilitate the negotiations between the armed groups of the G9 and the government. 
but they are since being accused, uh, several uh, officers of Jovenel Moïse and its party, the PHTK, the Parti Haïtien Tête-Calais, of being very close to some leaders of the G9. And we'll talk in a moment about the allegations of ties between the Moïse government, so the government of former President Jovenel Moïse, who was killed last year, ties between his government and Chirizia and the G9, how they've allegedly worked together. But before that, Diego, when you say that the G9 is an alliance of gangs, what does that actually mean? I mean, it's gangs working together concretely or just sort of respecting each other's territory? Well, these are kind of alliances that try to establish an armed supremacy in Port-au-Prince and in the rest of the country. And so in response to the creation of the G9, uh, another main gang leader, Jean-Gabriel, which is also known as T-Gabriel, created a rival alliance that is called the GPEP. So since mid-2020, for more than two years, these two gang alliances, the G9 and the GPEP, have been confronting in different uh, parts of Port-au-Prince. Uh, causing unprecedented hikes in violence in the country. And before we move to the politics, can you, Diego, tell us a little bit about Jimmy Cherizier or Barbecue, who heads this G9 coalition? I mean, from what I understand, he's a former policeman. Well, I think the most important thing to note is that he was, in a period of time, he was both a member of the police and the leader of one of the main gangs, the Delmasis. He was member of a special unit, anti-gang unit of the, of the Haitian police. And at the same time, he was the leader of the Delmasis. And during these months, uh, there was a massacre in one poor neighborhood of Port-au-Prince called La Saline. Some government officials very close to Jovenel Moïse were accused of planning the attack with the G9 and Charizier was accused of executing the attack in collaboration with members of the Haitian police to break up widespread uh, demonstrations that started in mid-2018 after President Moïse announced a sharp increase in fuel prices. So what, Charizier, when he was both in the police and a gang leader, massacred protesters who were demonstrating against Moïse. I think, tell me if this is wrong, but the US Treasury Department sanctioned at the end of 2020 Cherizier for participating in the massacre and Moïse's interior minister and I think another government official for participating in the planning and providing weapons, vehicles and police uniforms for those who participated in the attack. Yes, Cherizier went into La Saline and he killed the, the leaders of these uh, massive demonstrations that had been on the street, really putting pressure on Moïse government after he decided to raise uh, the oil prices. But it's important to know that it, this is not something that Moïse invented, right? Like in Haiti, politicians have used gangs as a way of intimidating people, of uh, doing extrajudicial executions or um, uh, just uh, bringing people to prison by not legal ways since forever. And uh, during the Duvalier dictatorship, that was a, a common practice. And Renata, that's Francois Duvalier, who's also known as Papa Doc, who uh, ruled Haiti between the 50s, 60s, early 70s, so more than 50 years ago now. Yeah, exactly. That's right. So 
even though Moise was definitely uh, very involved in utilizing the gangs to his advantage, he's just inheriting sort of a very corrupt practice that has been present in Haitian history um, for, for many, many years. So let's come on then to Haitian politics and we'll come in a moment to the current political crisis. But can we go back a little bit first? So a couple of years ago, Jovenel Moise as we heard up top, the former president that you talked about, he was killed, assassinated in his home in Port-au-Prince. What do we know now about his death? Well, there's been very little information or any kind of movement on the case itself in Haiti. You might remember that Moise was killed by a group of Colombian ex-soldiers, mercenaries, and the circumstances in which this happened are still pretty confusing. The one kind of theory uh, which is out there that the New York Times presented a year ago is that President Moise, who had been uh, elected as the person to run for presidency after Martelly's term was ending, was trying to build some distance between himself and Martelly and the rest of the PHTK party. The plan that Martelly had in mind was that uh, after his term in office was ending, Moise would be elected, then he would re- return to power, Martelly, and then Moise, and they would do like a 20-year uh, one-on-one. But that plan started falling apart because... uh once he was in power, Moise understood that he had very little space to act independently because Martelly really was imposing people, policies, and really uh, not letting him do what he wanted to do. And so the assumption that is out there is that Moise was going to give the Americans a list of politicians that were heavily involved in drug trafficking, which included Martelly. And although we don't have any way to say with all certainty who was involved in his assassination, it is clear that uh, Moise had become a problem for the PHTK party. And not necessarily because he was a reformer that wanted to clean politics, but more because he wanted to have his own power. And he saw that that was very limited uh, by Martelly. And so Moise is killed and then... Ariel Henry takes over, and Henry takes over as prime minister, basically because Moyes had appointed him, I think, by Twitter, or said he was going to be prime minister on Twitter just a couple of days before Moyes himself was killed. And the idea was that Henry was going to head a sort of transitional period and steward the country to elections. Yes, I mean, he wasn't even appointed officially, but President Moyes had said that the prime minister was leaving and that Henry was going to take power. And it is in that interregnum that Moyes gets assassinated. So there is at the beginning a lot of confusion about who should be the person in charge, if it should be the current prime minister, if it should be Henry, who was going to be sworn in a few days later. And in the middle of all this debate about what to do, the international community in Haiti, which is very powerful, particularly those who 
are known as the core group, which is a group that brings together the ambassadors of sort of the more involved foreign countries and the UN and the OAS, they sort of give the signal that they would support Henry becoming the new prime minister and being the head of government. And so that is what happens. Henry comes into power really with the mandate of conducting elections, even though everybody acknowledges um, that the conditions for elections are not there, right? Violence of the gangs are growing. The electoral census is very out to date, and there are a lot of problems with the electoral system overall. Problems that actually got worse when Henry in September of 2021, actually dismisses the Electoral Commission and really sort of stops the process of convening new elections. And so Henri is holding power. In opposition to him is a coalition known as the Montana Accord, which is sort of a diverse group of politicians from different parties and civil society. And they, from the beginning, have been opposed to Henri holding power, but certainly opposed to him holding power without elections in sight. Yes, and something that is important to note is that the Montana Agreement comes from a coalition of social, civil society organizations and political groups that were brought together in early 2021 when they tried to propose a solution to the way out of the political crisis that was facing the government of Jovenel Moïse. So they formed before the assassination of Moïse. And after the assassination, they signed an agreement with the PEN, the Le Protocole d'Entente Nationale, which brought together seven of the most important political parties in Haiti. Essentially, the Montana Agreement comes um, as a, both as a reaction to the appointment of Henry, but also, I think, very important to say, as a reaction to the international community having, again, made a decision for Haitians. And so what they say is, like, this is the moment when we need a Haitian-led proposal. We need a Haitian-led solution. And what they propose is an interim government that would last two years. They have a specific way in which they envision this to be shaped, but the key part is that they want Henry out. Uh, and they actually themselves have appointed somebody that they think should be the prime minister, somebody who they think should be the president. But even though it's a very wide coalition and it engages a lot of actors from civil society um, and the population, which normally have been excluded from politics in Haiti, it's also not a coalition that has any legal mandate. So their claim to power is just sort of, we are the people and we deserve to be the ones running the country. But obviously there is no legal mandate behind these claims that they're making, which makes it um, a little difficult. The Montana Agreement group was really sort of ignored by the international community early on after the assassination of Moist, but they have increasingly with time and throughout the last year, they've been very effective in showing to the world that they are an important voice that needs to be included in any agreement on how to move forward, particularly because they have been able to mobilize people on the street to uh, demand that Henry leaves power. So this then brings us to today's political crisis, which has led Henri to call for foreign troops to step in. I mean, basically, tell me if this is wrong. It was triggered first by the spiralling gang violence. Then Henri, in September, 
lifts fuel subsidies, which prompts inevitably a spike in fuel prices, which led to these big protests across much of Haiti, but particularly in the capital. Protests which, from what I understand, gang members actually joined. Plus the G9 seized the port and the fuel terminals. Can you talk a little bit about how all that happened? Well, on 11 September, the Prime Minister Henry announced sweeping cuts in fuel subsidies that doubled the fuel prices. Well, one day after the acting Prime Minister announced sweeping cuts in fuel subsidies, the G9, led by Cherizier, known as Barbecue, blockaded the country's main oil terminal that is called the Terminal Vareux. Cherizier stated that they would maintain the blockade until the prime minister uh, resigned. So the the G9 had also blockaded the Terminal Vareux last year between October and November. And this was the first time that a gang had taken full control of this important port because in Haiti, the energy system depends almost entirely in oil-based products. So if you block this terminal that has three quarters of the total stock of oil products, you bring the country to a halt. As last year, this year, there was limited access to drinking water because it is distributed with water trucks. There was a disruption of flow in essential goods and humanitarian aid. Medical centers were also facing this lack of fuel and had to close or reduce their staff. I think, Richard, what's important is that there are multiple crises that are sort of overlapping in Haiti. So we have, on the one hand, the security crisis. Since the assassination of Moïse, the gangs have gotten stronger, bigger, expanding, more cruel. Then we also have the political crisis, right? We have a president that has a very feeble grasp on power who has not been able to even name key positions such as the electoral courts, the Supreme Court. There's no Congress that is actually working. So the state, I mean, I don't like the word failed state, but it, we're talking very, very close to a state being unable to provide for its citizens uh, and really barely functioning. In fact, for example, the gangs have taken over one of the biggest courts in Port-au-Prince and they've been in the building for months and months and nobody has been able to take them out of there. And then on top of that, you have the humanitarian crisis. The lack of fuel made it impossible for people to get water. The roads are blocked so people can't access food. Literally, people are starving. It's the first time that the UN has said that some 20,000 people are, are facing what they call chronic hunger, which means literally no access to food whatsoever. And on top of all, cholera starts spreading again. Cholera was brutal several years ago in Haiti, and now it's starting to uh, also proliferate in part because there's no access to clean water and because people are not able to access the hospitals and medicine can't come into the communities. So the spread of cholera is really linked to the uh, expanding control of gangs. Absolutely. And Diego and I were working actually on a map that we're helping to make public soon, which shows exactly the way in which the gangs have blocked access to clean water in certain neighborhoods of City Soleil has made the cholera expand super fast. We don't have actually any current estimates of how many cholera cases there are, but uh, but at least uh, we're talking about 10,000 cases, uh, probably around a 1,000 deaths, and we know that this is a disease that 
proliferates really fast um, and, and it can take over the country very soon, which is what making the situation right now even more serious than it was just a few months ago. If I can add something on the on the color issue is that different employees of humanitarian organization I spoke to in Port-au-Prince agree on the fact that there is a strong link between the recent spikes of violence and the resurgence of cholera. The first cases were reported in early October in two gang control areas, Savan Pistache and Cité Soleil. And there is a canal that has been blocked by piles of garbage that were accumulated during the rainy season, which coincided with the July clashes between the G9 and the GPEP. So this produced extensive floodings in all these neighborhoods around the canal in Cité Soleil. And drinking water trucks have not been able to enter since July because of the flooding and the armed clashes. And people have had to drink from wells with contaminated water. And it's in these conditions of very limited access to drinking water and lack of sanitation facilities that cholera has resurfaced in, in Haiti. And so in response to all this, Henri puts out a request to the United Nations for peacekeepers. And we'll talk in a bit about the way that the UN itself has responded. But how is his call viewed in Haiti? I mean, what there was the big UN mission for a long time, MINUSTA, from what, 2004 to 2017, and was actually uh, at one point fighting gangs in Cité de Soleil. But the mission left ignominiously, right? I mean, it was associated with a previous bout of cholera. There were proven allegations of peacekeepers sexually abusing Haitians. And of course, Henri's call for peacekeepers can also be seen as a way to prop up his own sort of authorities. I mean, how have his calls been viewed among the Montana Accord? So maybe one precision that is important to make because of the debate that we're having right now is that he didn't necessarily ask for peacekeepers. He asked for foreign troops. He did send the communication to the UN, but it wasn't necessarily um, a, a request to bring back uh, the UN forces as such, as, as peacekeepers. And I think that that partially responds to what you were saying, Richard, that the UN is seen with incredible amounts of um, animosity among most Haitians because the peacekeeping mission unintentionally but provenly was d directly responsible for the last bout of cholera because uh, sewage uh, contaminated a river and the Nepalese soldiers had cholera and th that was the beginning of the spread. Sewage from a UN base, basically. Yes, exactly. Sewage from a UN base. And then because of the sexual abuse and what they call the Minusta babies, which is soldiers from the Minusta, which had relationship with local women, impregnated them, often girls, and then disappeared and left and have not taken any responsibility for their paternity. So the fact that Minusta ended its mandate uh, with sort of this disgrace over them, despite it having helped um you know, in some ways control the security situation while it was present, also built on the history of colonial interventions in Haiti that is very much on the forefront, right? Like Haiti, since the beginning of its history as an independent nation, has been, um, let's say, the victim of colonial interventions, beginning with the giant um, debt that France made it paid, which has made the country essentially broke. And I think the New York Times did a very good assessment of uh, the kind of economic way that that debt uh, meant. Uh, and then through U.S. interventions, you know, interventions to put a president and to take the president. 
just to clarify those three US interventions, I mean, one was a long time ago, so what, 1915, I think, and the others, what, 1994, when the US reinstated Jean-Bertrand Aristide, the elected president who'd been overthrown in a coup, and then again in 2004, basically to get Aristide out of the country when armed groups took over two Haitian cities. Yeah, exactly, that's right. And so I think Haitians are very much skeptical that there is going to be uh, much good coming from a, a foreign intervention. So when the request from Henry first came uh, and the UN, uh, the Secretary General sent an assessment mission, this mission came back and, and Guterres sent a letter to the Security Council saying, this is what we're envisioning, um, a sort of first like a rapid force that comes in and helps clear roads and allows for humanitarian access and then perhaps something a little bit longer that said, in all of this conversation, it has never been about peacekeeping. It has been about foreign troops, but with the blessing, but not under the UN mandate. So the first reaction from Montana and others were like, no, we're not doing this again. We've gone through these multiple times. This is a terrible idea. Again, Haitian-led solution. Foreign troops have brought nothing but despair to this country. Absolutely no. And that remains the position of some of the Montana group and actually of the most vocal people in social media and such. And it's a very understandable position. That said, this really desperate situation that we've been talking about today has made a growing number of people really come almost with resignation to the fact that if an international force doesn't come and get the gangs a little bit under control, at least takes this chokehold over the basic state uh, provisions of, of services and allows for a little bit of breathing space, there's going to be very difficult to create a stable government, move ahead towards election, and actually make sure that the cholera doesn't continue to spread. And this is something that when Diego was in Port-au-Prince, we were uh, making the effort for him to talk to other people that don't normally have access to the media, that don't get the microphones, that don't get invited to the international fora. We were asking, what do you want? How do you feel about these peacekeepers? And I think the answer for most of people were like, this is very, very far away from ideal, but honestly, it's the least bad option at this point. And from what I understand, Diego, I mean, that's especially the case in areas that have been racked by the worst violence and gang control. Well, yes. And when I spoke to people that have lived or that currently live in some areas that are under strict control of gangs and that are caught in the crossfire very frequently, they were the ones that were most in favor to the intervention of foreign troops. And somebody told me something that really struck me. And he was telling me that, well, it's really not if we are in favor or not, is that the police is not present in our areas. They do not carry out any operation uh, to retake, to regain control of these areas. And there might be many casualties if there are uh, military operations carried out in our areas and there will be civilians killed, but not so many as we have in our everyday life. There's obviously some pretty big challenges to any sort of foreign military force. I mean, there's the political challenges, which maybe we'll talk about in a moment, but just operationally, even if he goes in with a limited mandate to ease the gang's control of some of these, uh, the roads, for example, 
uh, the port, from what I understand, the fuel terminals have now been been taken back by the police. So they're out of gangs' controls. But even if foreign forces go in, take back some of the roads, some parts of the city, I mean, they could easily be pitted against gang members in exactly the areas you described, Renata, densely populated gang members and civilians, difficult to distinguish among them, uh, very difficult fighting conditions. Is there much appetite for getting from foreign forces to sort of commit troops to that type of operation? Yeah, so we've been talking to all of the uh, key countries that have been both passing, trying to pass the resolution of the United uh, Nations Security Council, but also Canadian officials, because Canada seems to be the obvious um, country that might be able to lead this kind of operation. And I think everybody is both very worried about sending troops, but is even more worried about nobody sending troops. <laughs> so everybody knows that this is going to be extremely difficult because you are sending men and women to be facing direct confrontation with armed gangs in a terrain that they don't know, a political environment that uh, could be hostile. But there's also an understanding that without it, what we're essentially doing is condemning um, Haiti to its own fate, which is not looking good. And how heavily armed the, the gangs? There are reports of U.S. security intelligence agencies who have been reporting that gangs have now very high caliber weapons. And the most important thing is that they have lots of ammunitions. They have right now big stocks of, of ammunitions that are being brought illegally from ports in South Florida. And these are mostly weapons that are manufactured in the US that find their way across. Yes, that find a way across the ports of Port-au-Prince or through Dominican Republic. Yeah, I mean, and obviously the problem is that purchasing these weapons in the U.S. is illegal. Yeah, it's very similar to some of what we talked about in the past, Renata, in, uh, in Central America and Mexico. But presumably, if the U.S. wanted to do more to stop the weapons sort of leaving the, the U.S., the, the, it could do that. Yeah, that's been our main recommendation to the American government, and I think they have heard it. It's a crucial part of this equation. If you stop the flow of weapons and if you stop deportations of Haitians that are coming back into a terrible situation and probably feeding into these gangs, uh, at least you are moderately um, taking some power away from the gangs. So there's the operational challenge, but there's also the political challenge, right? I mean, is there any talk of sort of linking the deployment of some sort of international force, which is what Henri wants? Is there any talk of linking that to some sort of clearer transition, some sort of compromise with the Montana Accord, so that at least there's a, a sort of political track that the military intervention is contributing towards? I mean, I think that maybe the thing that has changed the most in the last six months in terms of the international conversation around Haiti is that today every single person who's considering this um, international intervention agrees that without a political agreement within the Haitian political and civil society, this is not going to work. And Trudeau himself said it publicly a few weeks ago. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. 
Yes, uh, Trudeau did say when he was in a meeting, I believe in Tunisia a couple of weeks ago, that until there was not an agreement between all political parties in Haiti, there is going to be no troops sent. I mean, we don't know if all political con- parties really mean every single one of them, but it is clear that unless there is a consensus among a significant part of the political and civil society community in Haiti around the, the, this foreign intervention, uh, it's not going to move forward. And I think it is very understandable, in particular because Henry is such a weak president and he has a very thin constitutional mandate because of the way in which he was appointed, because he is replacing a president whose term already ended. And so the concern, obviously, is that if something happens to Henry, if he ends up out of power and the troops are there and there is not a consensual invitation from other sources, they're essentially an invading army. So one thing the Security Council has done is uh, uh, mandate sanctions. It hasn't actually sanctioned anyone yet, but it has passed a resolution approving sanctions, uh, which whose sanctions will then be determined by uh, a group of experts. But after that, the US and Canada have sanctioned a list of Haitians, including former President Michel Martelly and, and other political leaders. How have people in Haiti viewed those sanctions? First, I would say that international partners are making at least a huge step in addressing the main problem underlying the current insecurity crisis, which is the links between violence and politics, the links between the political and economical elites to the armed gangs. So over the last month, more than 10 politicians have been sanctioned by the US and Canada, mainly by Canada. Uh, among them, there are current and former heads of the Senate. There is former President Martelly and two of his prime ministers. And more recently, there's three main business leaders uh, who have been sanctioned by Canada. The U.S. is facing the problem that a lot of the people that the Canadians are sanctioning are dual citizens between Haiti and the U.S. And so the level of proof that they have to have before sanctioning uh, nationalized citizens is higher. But it has it has fallen among the Haitian um, civil society and politics like a giant bomb, essentially, these sanctions. It is the first time that countries are taking direct steps in really targeting those behind financing the gangs and in a way sending the very strong message that they're not going to stand by as politics as usual continue. Uh, so what we heard from private meetings that the business groups have had is that people are really scared. And this might be Diego and I were having this conversation when he was in Port-au-Prince Having like a little bit of an unintended consequence in terms of the political agreement is that because you don't know who else is going to be listed, people are afraid of doing pacts with people that might end up in sanctions lists in a few days. So it is brought a little bit of a freezing of conversations too, just because everybody is so concerned of being attached to somebody that then becomes toxic once they are in the sanction list. But also from a different point of view that some government officials uh, gave to me, it might be that maybe this might work as an incentive to negotiate because everybody understands that they have to negotiate a transitional government in order to not be the object of further sanctions by international partners. Could I ask one more, Renata, Diego, one more to end, which is 
I mean, let's say that there is some sort of political agreement. Let's say some foreign force deploys with an initial mandate to clear some of the areas from gangs, get humanitarian aid, help stem the spread of cholera. And then after that, as you said earlier, Renata, there's some sort of longer term mission which is aimed at securing areas, working with the Haitian police so that they can gradually take control of those areas. You know, all that involves possibly quite a bit of fighting with the gangs. But if you take a figure like Jimmy Chirizier or the barbecue that we talked about earlier, take a figure like him. I mean, he's so his some of the G9, this coalition of gangs that, that he runs, join protests. I mean, obviously, some of what he's done is is political. He's tried to position himself politically. What's the future for a gang leader like that? I mean, it's it's hard to know right now just because uh, he's just seen as a military figure right now. But I think, um, as in other cases in Central America and such, we know that completely demobilizing gangs by armed force, it's, it's actually not feasible. It's not going to happen. And as long as the situations that are making them thrive, such the economic poverty, the marginalization, etc., as long as those stand, there's going to be new people willing to, to come into the gangs. So yes, I think that ideally there will be a negotiation that would give uh, some way out for Cherisier and other band leaders and then um, uh, like some DDR process, but honestly, I see that as really far away in the case of Haiti right now. I think that one important thing is that if there is a an intervention of uh, foreign troops, they must rely on the threat of an imminent and strong intervention in order to make some of the gang leaders engage in negotiations with the Haitian authorities, because that could save many, many lives. So maybe before foreign forces start fighting, use the threat that they potentially present to the gangs to try and force leaders to what you know, remove roadblocks, hand over some areas, for example, even give themselves up. Well, people who talk to some of the gang leaders have told me that they believe that when For example, Gabriel Cherizier Iscar will see the helicopters going to the Aeroport Toussaint Louverture when they see in social media the armed forces going out from the planes and when they receive the call from international agency telling them to surrender or to prepare to be killed, maybe some of them would be willing to initiate some negotiations. Diego, Renata, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on Haiti on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. Look out actually next week for our report on the crisis. You can also check out a piece that Renata wrote in Foreign Affairs that looks at some of the dilemmas that a foreign force might face if it does deploy into Port-au-Prince, into Haiti. Thanks very much to our producers, Kevin Murphy, Heiko Schaub, and thanks as ever to all of you, our listeners. Please do get in touch, podcast at crisisgroup.org or write to me directly at crisisgroup.org if you have any questions, suggestions or concerns. If you like the show, please do leave us a positive rating or review. This may be the last episode of the year of 2022. Depends a little bit on how things shape up next week. If it is, have a good holiday season for those of you who celebrate. And I very much hope you'll join us again next time.
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.